Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WAB in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The relationships of children who follow in the footsteps of famous parents sometimes can be fraught. That did not apply to jazz guitarist John Pizzarelli. His father, was the legendary swing guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli. When asked about his music education in an interview, Pizzarelli said, College of Bucky Pizzarelli. Now, John Pizzarelli has broadened the scope of the great American songbook with more recent standards. While continuing to honor the greats of his father's era, today we listen back to John Pizzarelli talking about and playing from his centennial tribute to Nat King Cole in 2019. Plus, Brandon Morrison, the latest in our series of visual artists in their own words. First... Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber has written scores for several of the world's most famous musicals, from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat to Cats and Phantom of the Opera. His work is known far beyond London and Broadway. Aurora Theatre is returning to live performance with a production of Song and Dance, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical. Joining me now via Zoom to talk about this production are the co-founder and artistic director of Aurora Theatre, Anne Carol Pence, and Angela Harris, the executive artistic director of Dance Canvas. Welcome to City Life. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Lois. This Broadway hit first premiered in the 1980s, and it doesn't have the name recognition of Phantom, Cats, or Evita. What can you tell us about this music? Well, it is usually done in two parts, one called song and one called dance. Uh, Song is a one act that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote with Don Black, but nobody ever lets the rights 
to the dance portion of the show out. And Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote Act Two to a piece based on a Paganini piece, and he wrote it for his brother Julian, who's a cellist. And so he never lets this part of the show out. He only lets that first act. And I was bound and determined from November of last year that we were going to be able to return to the theater, not just with this one act, but with this fully formed meaning of what does it mean that we have not as an arts culture been able to gather around song or around dance. And I've known Angela for years and years and years. I pitched the idea. She jumped on board and it really, it is miraculous to see that she took this piece of music. There's barely any recording of it, but the story that she is telling of this woman, again, through the eyes of dance, through the lens of dance is just amazing. Please tell us about the song, Tell Me on a Sunday and how Weber's one-woman show morphed into it being act one of Song and Dance. The producer of all of his works was looking for a way to create a fully formed musical because Cats was so successful. So it was the idea of his producers to be able to link those two. Angela, obviously, Ann Carroll was thrilled about this collaboration. I'm curious about your choreography. Is it entirely original? Yes, I'm really excited to be back at the Aurora Theater. I have had the opportunity for many years to work on productions, both as a performer and as a choreographer. Like Aunt Carol said, the music was there, but in terms of guidance as to a storyline or where act two and dance was to go, it was something that I had the liberty to shape entirely. So that is such a luxury for a choreographer to be given the freedom to dream and to make art on stage. And I'm really thankful for the opportunity and to tell a story that parallels what act one song is saying. Indeed, there is no voice, there's no dialogue anywhere in Act Two. It's entirely a dance concert. It is, and that is what makes this show really, really unique. It's such a great display of the professional talent that calls Metro Atlanta home and Georgia home. The ability for audiences to see a production that has this gorgeous song act and then see an act of, in essence, a story ballet in the same production is rare to say the least. But I think that Aurora and the Aurora stage is such a beautiful platform for it. Well, Julian Lloyd Webber, the composer's brother, as Anne Carroll mentioned, is a concert cellist, and this was conceived for him. Please tell us about the virtuoso cellist we can expect to see and hear. 
Oh, gladly. Noah Johnson is one of the new instructors at Gwinnett County's School of the Arts. And what we wanted to do with the piece also is to amplify for the very first time Gwinnett County Public Schools has a commitment to rigor and skill with regard to the arts. And they have had an audition only program and started at the Central Gwinnett High School campus that its own little conservatory. I'm so proud of them. So one of our co-directors is Lily and Gina Quinones. Our set designer is Michael Tarver. So we're engaging staff from the get-go because those staff members are overly qualified in, in the arts in Metro Atlanta and they have chosen to use all those skills as educators. And Noah is one of those educators. So he had been playing in my pit for a couple years. I've grown to know and love him anyway. And the minute I heard this piece, the first time I reached out to him. He is a cellist and our friend uh, India Tyree is a performer. And I said, if I get this, are you all the two that are on board? Because that's what we felt like was important. Because of the kids at, at Central Gwinnett, at the School of the Arts, 135 of the 188 in the opening class are non-white members of our community. We're excited about that and we want to amplify on stage voices that are global citizens. And so that's another area where we are so excited to see that we're going to be representative of the community that we serve. Last night, Angela and I put the band together with the dancers for the first time, and it was so exciting because even when we see these new pieces being developed, so very rarely are we seeing them developed with bands. And that for us as band members, so very rarely are we playing on stage and watching the choreography as it unfolds literally inches from us, inches from us. And so right away a dancer would go, can you go a little faster? Uh, I didn't hear this line. Can you do this? It was so exciting. And Angela was in the house, you know, no matter what, Angela's like, can you do this? Can you do this? And it's like, okay, we're doing it. We're doing it. But it was so exciting. Again, what, 20 of us in the room creating music that only this company of dancers will will dance to. You mentioned Andrew Lloyd Webber's Variations is the cello work that forms the accompaniment to the narrative ballet of Act Two. How would you describe his style of composition for Variations? Oh, well, I'm speaking on it from a dancer's perspective. It is a brilliant piece to dance. It's so rhythmic and it's so emotional. I was watching one of the pieces that really features the cellist and it's a solo dancer with the cello. And as an audience member watching, I got chills at how the cello could make the movement feel a certain way. And I think that all of the variations, because they were created both for music and dance, they really do have that emotional quality that words can't express. And I think that that is what I love so much about all of the variations in act two. And Carol mentioned that the variations are on this famous theme by Paganini, the 19th century Italian violinist and composer. Does the music have a strictly classical feel for the dance? 
it runs the gamut, Lois. In one number, <laughs> you'll hear guitar and cello, and it will be so classical, and you'll feel like you're transported back to Italy. And then you'll hear Andrew Lloyd Webber, who likes to, let's say, steal from himself in a great way. So you'll hear a little remnant of Jesus Christ Superstar when we have our distorted guitar just jamming up in it. Then in another one, you'll hear kind of an old-fashioned, almost like a um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And we buy into that, right? We want a little bit of your fake horn in there, those little synthesized things that we liked when we were in the 80s and uh, and growing up. And then we tried to make it new, too. So we, we really tried to exploit that it, it runs the gamut. And just like the dance runs the gamut. I think one really cool thing that when people come to see it, they're going to see is I can almost literally look at a dance that Angela's choreographed and directly relate it to a song in act one of what this woman is experiencing. So there's one really cool dance where the woman is trying to choose between these two men and both the men are, are challenging her and they both are jealous and you just feel it. Like Angela said, you can hear it when the instrumentals are playing and how she really digs out of these dancers that we want you to feel frustrated. We want you to be passionate in this moment. So all those are really well paralleled in act one. And, and Angela, again, just the sky's the limit in how she chooses to demonstrate that through movement in act two. Tell me on a Sunday is the best known song from this show. Are there others that are especially appealing? Well, the neat thing is, is that they are continuing to adapt this act one. So there's so many versions of lyrics and songs in act one, but this new song they added, it looks like they only finished adding it actually in 2020 of all things. In May of 2020 is when they have the time and date stamp at the bottom called Dreams Never Come on Time. And it's a song you won't really hear recorded anywhere. So it'll be brand new to the audience. And it really just says, you know, I have a dream for my life and I have goals for myself, being loved and being accepted and uh, being happy. But maybe those don't come in, in the way that we expect them. And so that's going to end up being one of my favorite moments because it's been unexplored before. But they will recognize Unexpected Song, I believe. That's how we're going to end Act One. When the show was originally produced, it was put smack dab in the middle. The way they have reconceived the act is they have that as a finale to her life. Based on a recording of the performance that Andrew Lloyd Webber did, we also, in Act 2, want to surprise the audience by including that song with new lyrics called When You Want to Fall in Love. And it literally says, we are just returning to the stage. There's one little lyric that says, time the song begins and time the dance begins to stir. Once more the world is turning. We need this, Lois. We need it. And to watch every one of these performers come in every day, they need it, and our community needs it. Co-founder and artistic director of Aurora Theater, Ann Carol Pence, and Angela Harris, the executive artistic director of Dance Canvas. Song and Dance, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, opens tomorrow at Aurora Theater and runs through September 12th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, speaking of the arts, 
our series featuring Georgia artists in their own words. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Brandon Morrison. I am a painter. I paint mostly with acrylic paints, oil pastels, chalks, and pencils on canvas and wood. And I tend to work in a figurative style. I draw pretty heavily from sort of a flat, modernist, cubist style with elements of abstract expressionism. My mother was a high school art teacher, and I remember watching VHS documentaries of Van Gogh and Matisse and Picasso and you name it. And I just fell in love with it. There were always art books around the house. And more than that, she had students and she would bring home sketchbooks and projects and we'd sit on the floor together and flip through mounds of artwork. And I just, there was something about it that I always loved. And my mom is still my probably harshest critic and biggest fan. I never made a lot of art growing up in the house, maybe because my mom was the teacher at the school that I went to. Instead, my first love was music, and I had a band from the time I was uh, 14. My closest buddies were the bandmates. We went to college together, and I didn't really start painting until I was in college when uh, my mom sent me a care package with some acrylic paints and canvas boards one day. Atlanta continues to be an inspiring city to me. I love the diversity. I'm coming from a beach town in Florida and, and now living in what feels like a big city to me is exciting. There's vibrancy, there's cacophony of sound, and there's lots of movement. And I find all of that to be really exciting. I live in a cool part of town in Grant Park and very close to my studio and so I'm often not in the traffic like I once was and so I feel like I get the best of all possible worlds here in Atlanta. I'm pretty aware of the painters and the artists that came before me that I just think are fantastic and I, I know whose shoulders I'm standing on top of and oftentimes I will take an element of some Picasso painting or a pose from some Romare Bearden collage and try to make that my own. I'm very much influenced by graffiti and hip hop, music in general. 
music was my first love, and I still think about my paintings in those terms a lot of times. Uh, I think of call and response and theme and variation and improvisation, and there's within the structure of the painting, there's always a space for improvisation and sort of just letting loose. And oftentimes that letting loose part where it sort of hits a flow state and it generates its own momentum. I think there's something very energetic and very exciting about street art. And I think unplugged from any gallery scene right now, that's where I really like to go to find inspiration and to see what I think is some of the most exciting artwork that's happening out there with the Living Walls projects and a lot of the stuff that's happening in Cabbage Town and the Krog Tunnel, and, and there's new work every day. I signed my paintings with a pseudonym, Iblet, I-B-L-E-T. A friend of mine one time long ago was trying to say I bet and fumbled and it was a laugh and I stuck it in a little box in the bottom of the drawing and I really liked the way that it looked and it quickly became sort of a graffiti tag like logo and it gives me some quality of anonymousness and I'm not writing my own name on the bottom of the painting and, and now it's just something I like the way that it looks at the bottom. I'm really blessed to say that painting is my full-time job now and I'm in the studio all the time making new work. I've started a new project just this week. I've begun work on a series of paintings that will be used for the set design of an upcoming NBC TV show. Ultimately, what I love really is just painting. I love the smell of the paint. I love the way that it holds onto the brush and I love just watching something come out of nothing. And for someone to walk into my studio and find a piece that I created maybe that day and to flash on it and to be excited about it is a blessing. Brandon Morrison and our series Speaking of the Arts. You can learn more about Morrison and his artwork on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. In a moment, John Pizzarelli salutes Nat King Cole. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The jazz singer, guitarist, and composer John Pizzarelli has recorded tributes to Duke Ellington, Antonio Carlos Jobim, Frank Sinatra, and Paul McCartney. And now he has set his sights on the legendary Nat King Cole. His latest and 25th recording is titled For Centennial Reasons, a 100-year salute to Nat King Cole. When I spoke with John Pizzarelli in May of 2019, we talked about the marvelous influence that Pizzarelli's father, the legendary swing guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli, had on his son's life. Sadly, Bucky Pizzarelli died from complications due to COVID less than a year after this conversation was recorded. 
This interview now serves not only as a salute to Nat King Cole, but as a celebration of Bucky Pizzarelli's fear of influence. Here, John Pizzarelli speaks about how his father introduced him to the music that changed everything. As many things do in, in my uh, household, it goes back to my father, who uh, had a piano, bass, and guitar group at the Pierre Hotel in the, in the late 70s. And I always found it fascinating. I thought it was a great little group, how he was playing rhythm guitar, all the things he was doing in that group, and how, how uh, great the group sounded. And I was 16 then. And then when I was uh, 19, in the winter of, uh, in January of 1980, uh, a friend of mine suggested I learn a song called Straighten Up and Fly Right by a guy named Frank Weber, who had made a record of pop songs. And I played it for my father, and my father said to me, you know, you got to find those Nat Cole records, because that's going to change your life. That's a Nat King Cole song. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, Capitol Records had just uh, released two records, uh, the best of the Nat Cole trio, volume one and volume two. And I bought them at our local record store and came home and the second I heard uh, Paper Moon on that record uh, and then everything else, I, I was like, oh, this is, this is a, a discovery of the highest order for me. It is only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. It is only a canvas sky sailing over a muslin tree. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. Without your love, it's a honky-tonk parade. Without your love, it's a melody played on a penny arcade. It's a Barnum and Bailey world. Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me It's a cliche thing to say, but it was an aha moment <laughs> for me to hear and to hear the piano, bass, and guitar trio uh, that Nat Cole started that my father was emulating uh, just four years earlier and uh, hearing that group, and I said, oh, these are, this is all... Everything I want in this kind of music, in jazz and uh, the, the vocal songs, there's a sense of humor, there's a sentimentality to the ballads, and uh, there's no heavy lifting on them. They were, emotionally, they were perfect for a 19-year-old who needed some songs to uh, share with his father on the bandstand. Oh, I think that's fantastic. So it's almost as though you and your trio our grandchildren of the Nat King Cole trio. Well, it's it's a lovely thing to say. I, I, I you know, from there on in, that's all I wanted to do was uh, be a part of a group that sounded like the Nat Cole trio and that, that had that kind of uh, sense of swing and jazz in it and yet uh, still related to uh, the non-jazz listener in the audience. And I think that's what Nat was able to do through his sincerity and... and uh, uh, just his fantastic delivery. Everybody loved Nat Cole, you know, and that was, uh, I think that's part of the, the greatness of him. Yeah. Your 25th album is a tribute to Nat King Cole's centennial. It's called For Centennial Reasons. 
but it's not your first recording of his music. How does For Centennial Reasons differ from your first two recordings? Well, the very first one, uh, Dear Mr. Cole, was with Benny Green and Christa McBride, and it was made for uh, the, the RCA, a, a Japanese division of RCA, and um, it got released here. And they're great musicians, and they weren't two gentlemen that I'd ever worked with before. And so we also sort of discovered what we were going to do together in the studio in the two days that we spent there. The second record was with my working trio at that time, Ray Kennedy on piano and my brother on bass. And uh, we had a lot of that material in our back pocket, and RCA wanted us to make a record, and we said, well, we can do this. We'll just bookend our earlier Nat Cole record with some more Nat Cole stuff. And so that record sort of flies by, uh, mm-hmm. as, as, as that group sort of did musically. It was really just lots going on there. But this record, I felt at, as a 59-year-old, uh, I was able to look back at the material that I had heard when I was 19, as in the tracks of Route 66 and Paper Moon and Straighten Up and Fly Right, and then find a few more ballads that uh, I was now able to approach uh, you know, hopefully in a more mature way, like the very thought of you and when I fall in love and uh, even find a few uh, humorous things like Save the Bones for Henry Jones mm-hmm. and Hungry Man and things like that. So it really was, I thought, uh, a, a time to just look back at it all and, and say this is where I am now, thanks to Nat Cole. Mm. This song, Straighten Up and Fly Right, took on... Um, a huge life of its own. It became something of a metaphor. Kind of uh, surprised Nat at the time. What do you make of it? I think that he may have taken it from a sermon that uh, his father gave, but uh, also there's the idea that the, the, the monkey and the buzzard all each need each other. You know, he can't let go or he can't strangle the buzzard or the buzzard goes down and everybody goes down. Uh, there's, and this was uh, the idea of, uh, of, of everybody getting along, straighten up and fly right. Uh, people have used that phrase forever. Someone said to me the other day, I used to say that to my son all the time, straighten up and fly right. <laughs> and yet I, re- I read a story uh, where uh, uh, a guy who really liked the Nat Cole trio played the record for Lucille Ball, and she said it's the dirtiest song she's ever heard in her life. <laughs> Okay, we can reconsider that as we listen. A buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air. The monkey thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw that monkey off his back. The monkey looked at him and said, Now listen, Jack. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top Ain't no use in diving What's the use in jiving? Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top You see, the buzzer tells the monkey you were choking me Release your hold and I will set you free The monkey looks the buzzer right dead in the eye Says your story's so touching but it sounds just like a lie So straighten up and fly right Straighten up and stay right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top I think it 
really became a touchstone for uh, soldiers, for U.S. troops during World War II. Yes, that too. Sure, sure. Yeah. And such a universal hit. I mean, that became... In those days, there were race records or the race charts, and, and this one crossed over, and everybody was listening to Straighten Up and Fly, right? So it was really groundbreaking for Nat Cole, especially, uh, you know, this song was really started it. I can see why Nat's original trio would appeal to you as it didn't have drums and was in the tradition of your dad. So guitar and bass shared more of the rhythmic underpinnings. But the guitar seems to have as much of a melodic role in your arrangements. Well, for me, since I'm the leader of the band, I guess I get to do a little more <laughs> of the heavy lifting. But, you know, when, when the, the beauty of the way Oscar Moore and later on Irving Ashby and later on uh, John Collins played guitar for Nat. It was it was really as, actually Oscar Moore who started the idea of this this sort of uh, electric Freddie Green uh, rhythm guitar playing. That that uh, Freddie Green, of course, the rhythm. They were sort of like a Count Basie rhythm section, and they could be the Count Basie band at times hmm. because of the way the the guitar was used to to play little shout choruses with Nat that sounded like the band, like sounded like a big band, and then uh, of course they'd have this little rhythm or when Oscar Moore would play single notes, the things that he was playing were really, it was just truly a, a groundbreaking group. And even Johnny Miller's bass playing, they had little walking bass solos, were unheard of in that time. It was groups like Ahmad Jamal and Art Tatum and, and uh, Oscar Peterson, most notably, who, who had drumless trios because they, they saw the value of this group and, and how hard it was swinging, but so intimately. You mentioned Nat's original guitarist, Oscar Moore. Aside from your dad, would you say he had the greatest influence on your own playing? Sure. I think uh, Oscar, whenever I am asked three guitar players, Oscar Moore is always in that group, along with George Van Epps and George Barnes. And I think they're all sort of influenced, well, actually two of them, Oscar Moore and George Barnes also had Charlie Christian and Les Paul in their uh, in their sights. So, uh, but I, what they ended up doing, especially Oscar Moore, is just uh, it's thrilling to me. Every time I hear the arrangement of Paper Moon, uh, it, it it's uh, it's most one of the most joyful sounds. And you revisited Paper Moon on the new recording for Centennial Reasons. Yes. It is only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard sea But wouldn't be make-believe if you How about traveling down Route 66? <laughs> and Well, you know, Bobby Troop, who wrote that song, was such a hero of mine. And he told me that the first night, one of his first nights in Los Angeles after he got out of the uh, Marines, he went to hear Nat Cole's group. 
And I don't know if it was a buddy of his or someone went up to Nat Cole and said, you know, Bobby Troop is here. He writes songs. You know, maybe he's got a song for you. And Nat said, let's hear what he's got. So Bobby Troop went up and played Baby Baby all the time for him, which Nat loved. And I said to Bobby, why that song first? And he said, because it's obvious nobody sings or says the word baby better than Nat Cole. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, "Uh, you have any other songs? He goes, I don't have any other songs, but I have a title. And I think it's going to be a good song, but uh, there's no song yet. And Nat said, well, what's the title? And he said, get your kicks on Route 66. And Nat said, when you're done with that, I'll take it too. I get your kicks on Route 66. I know you did through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri, Oklahoma City looks mighty pretty. You'll see Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico, Flagstaff, Arizona, don't forget Winona, Kingman, Barstow, San Bernardino, won't you get hip to this timely tip? When you make that California trip, get your kicks on Route 66. John, you also paid tribute to uh, Frank Sinatra's Centennial in 2015. I was intrigued to learn about the degree of Frank Sinatra's friendship and admiration for Nat King Cole in a biography I read. What do you make of their friendship? Actually, I think it was Nat Cole who suggested to Capitol Records that they they get Sinatra on the label. Uh, I mean, Nat Cole was that kind of guy. I, from what I've read too, that he was you you couldn't help but admire him. The 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 kind of person he was, just as a man, and doing the things he was doing, and putting up with the things he was putting up with. And I think Sinatra saw this this sort of pillar of strength here, and this great jazz musician, and this. I mean, he was, he was the classiest guy. Every every clip you see of Nat Cole, you just can't help but think, that's, I want to know that guy. That's the, <laughs> that's the hippest and sweetest guy in the room, you know? Yeah. I think everybody had a, an admiration for Nat Cole that was uh, second to none. Except those people in the neighborhood where he bought his house in yes. Hancock Park I, in L.A., and he still managed to he still managed to go there and and to the meeting and say to them, well, you're passing around a thing that says you don't want uh, you don't want undesirables in the neighborhood. He says I'll sign that too. I don't want undesirables in the neighborhoods. He he had a way to to figure out at least try to figure out how to deal with that situation. And uh, I mean, it was terrible what was what was going on. The fact that he couldn't get a sponsor for his television program after. Uh, uh, 13 months on the air, uh, and it was as good a program as existed oh, yeah. still to this day. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, that's when he made that famous comment about uh, Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. Yeah. Be- I mean, he, I, uh, Buddy Childers, who played lead trumpet with Stan Kenton, told us a story on the Sinatra tour uh, in 93 that Nat Cole was 
performing with the Stan Kenton Orchestra, but he would drive ahead of the bus. He had his uh, had a Cadillac that Nat liked to drive on the road, so he drove ahead of the bus, and they were going to stop at a certain place in Texas. And Nat, when they got there, Nat was eating his meal off the trunk, off the hood of his car in the parking lot of this restaurant. And they said, well, what are you doing out here? And they said, well, they won't let me in, but of the 30 songs on the jukebox, 26 are mine, so they said I could eat in the parking lot. Oh. And that's what the guys saw him there. I mean, it's, we were like, oh, couldn't and, believe it. And yet he maintained that cool and was the embodiment of refinement and elegance. Sure. I guess, again, part of the Sinatra connection that intrigues me is that Sinatra himself had such amazing vocal clarity and that trademark smooth sound that he enjoyed and appreciated Nat King Cole's phrasing just speaks volumes because Nat didn't start out to be a singer. I mean, you could say he sort of became an accidental singer. Right. And I, what was beautiful about also what Nat Cole does, still, <laughs> in a sense, there aren't a lot of songs in the King Cole category uh, that are Sinatra songs. Nat's, Nat's uh, repertoire is his own. And Nat Cole had hit records. Sinatra didn't have the kind of hits, I don't believe, that Nat Cole had. When you think about you can name uh, Mona Lisa, Nature Boy, and Unforgettable, Uh, And then all the other ones, uh, Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer, Ramblin' Rose, Love, uh, Answer Me, Pretend, Ballerina. All those records were hit records, major hit records. And and they were all singular to Nat Cole. Uh, They weren't Sinatra songs. They were Nat Cole songs. That was his repertoire. And I think that's another uh, uh, great stamp on what Nat Cole was doing. He was finding songwriters and carving out his own niche and not following anybody else. And he was creating creating the repertoire. Well, returning to Four Centennial Reasons on your 25th album, tell us about Nat King Cool. <laughs> well, um, I love the instrumental records that the Nat King Cole trio made. One in particular was called uh, Jumpin' at Capital. And what they did was... They wrote this melody over the chords to a song called I Found a New Baby. And that's what a lot of jazz musicians were doing, were just writing new melodies to chords that they like to play jazz on. And so uh, this song, Nat King Cool, <laughs> we I wrote the melody... Uh, over the chords of uh, Sweet Georgia Brown. So you could actually, when that melody starts, you could sing Sweet Georgia Brown because uh, those are the chords of the song. So it was sort of an homage to the way that the King Cole trio was uh, doing business. I love it.
100 years from now has more than one meaning on this centennial album. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I thought about the idea of uh, loving someone for 100 years. Like, here's Nat 100 years later, and we're all so in love with him. And uh, so that concept of, you know, I'll still love you 100 years from now. It's And I what I wanted to do was put all these little... Jazz things like you let me flip flop on the bebop, sang a frim fram, made a vow, and then uh, I mentioned razzmatazz me higher brow and uh, call me your old buckaroo. These little sort of little jazz phrases, a uh, different kind of language uh, that they used in some of the early King Cole trio records that came out of Decca that they all sang together. And so my wife Jessica helped me. I had all that on a piece of paper, and then she would sort of, it's sort of like a Rubik's Cube where I needed seven more moves to make all the colors match up. And I, I gave it to Jess, my wife, and said, will you fix this? And she went, click, 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 there. That's how it should be. Uh-oh. So that's <laughs> that worked out. I love it. You gave me that old kickaroo, and baby, did I fall a century of loving you. Well, who needs Geritol? You made this old boy feel the Floyd joy More than life should allow Says in my almanac That I am right on track to love you A hundred years from now I enjoyed reading that you and your wife, Jessica Mlosky, have been called the Astaire Rogers of Cabaret. That is a great mixed metaphor. <laughs> well, we've had uh, a lot of fun working together since we've met, and uh, especially for the, I think we've done the Carlisle every winter, every November for 13 years, and it's been so much fun. And they've called us a lot of different things that have worked out. We we do a little radio show together, and uh, they've called us the Texan Jinx of uh, radio or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, so there's a lot of combinations of things out there. I just think it's marvelous the way you communicate jazz to non-jazz listeners. Thank you. You know, I find it to be a style of music, not a, a period of time. So if I'm going to play swing jazz... Uh, it's no different from if if a, a guitar a group plays great rock and roll that's etched, that's rooted in say 1968. There's nothing different than us saying if we're going to play this music from 1945 or 1951 or 58, we're going to play it with all of our uh, you know with every fiber in our body to make it sound. It's not a caricature. It's what we're we want to we've worked on the this style of music, and we're going to bring that out there and show you why it's vibrant. And even take that style to songs from the late 20th century and early 21st century. So that's, you know, the same thing. We, we can we can take Beatles songs and make them sound like swing jazz tunes. Uh, and I, I think that I love swing jazz, and I love the people like Benny Goodman, Count Basie, and Nat Cole, and Oscar Peterson who played it. And I just want to continue in that line and hope to make people... Uh, have a great night of, of music wherever they come to hear me. That was jazz guitarist and vocalist John Puzzarelli talking about his latest release for Centennial Reasons. 
A 100-year salute to Nat King Cole. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. We have more COVID-related arts news today. As the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations continues to grow in Georgia, arts organizations are implementing new mandates. On Monday, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra announced it will require patrons to be fully vaccinated or show a negative COVID test within 72 hours of attending ASO concerts. The announcement came soon after the Alliance Theater issued a similar statement last week about vaccination requirements for their venue. Both policies go into effect September 1st, and details can be found on their respective websites, alliancetheater.org and atlantasymphony.org. Additionally, the largest Pride Festival in the Southeast will not be waving its rainbow flags this year. In an announcement on Wednesday, officials with the Atlanta Pride Committee decided to cancel this year's parade due to the rise in COVID-19 cases. The joyous occasion is normally held in Midtown and Piedmont Park each October, but like last year, this one will be completely digital. All in-person events surrounding the parade are canceled as well. In past years, the Atlanta Pride Parade and other events connected to it attracted more than 350,000 people to the city. Officials said this decision was not made lightly, but is for the benefit of the entire community. Finally, a bit of brighter news. Residents of Fulton County who have already received at least one vaccine shot can attend a free concert this weekend, the Vax Up Music Fest. The festival's happening at Wolf Creek Amphitheater, and a limited number of vaccines will be available at the concerts for those who still need a shot. The days will be divided between two genres, Vax Up Hip Hop on Saturday and Vax Up Gospel on Sunday. This free music festival was created to help close the vaccination gaps within Fulton County, especially those in black and brown communities. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Chasing Me to My Grave, the stunning memoir of artist Winfred Rembert. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Lattice Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.